turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter 2. We are continuing our study here in Acts chapter 2. Last week didn't quite finish the section I was hoping to finish. Uh, We are going to be starting our reading, therefore, at Acts chapter 2 and verse 12, as the people respond, wondering what in the world is going on with all these marvelous signs occurring. And we'll read from uh, chapter 2, verse 12 to verse 21. Before we read the Word of God, let's seek the Lord again and ask His help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come as those eager to hear from You and as those who know that we need the Word of God, for it is our life. Lord, would You use Your Word this morning to instruct our hearts, to guide us in our thoughts and our living. Lord, would You conform us to the image of Your Son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word Acts 2 and verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah, Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, thus far, the Word of God. Brethren, please be seated. Last week, we were introduced to this incredibly unique moment in biblical history where the anticipation of the prophets turns into fulfillment at Pentecost. The age of the Spirit, what we might call the messianic era of new life and vast kingdom expansion, has dawned in the harvest of souls. And this great transition was marked by signs and wonders. The wind, or more particularly the Spirit, rushing in with power, bringing new creation. The visible display of tongues of fire on every believer, signaling that each believer has become the very dwelling place of the living God. And then there was the curse reversed. Babel temporarily overturned to show that Christ will build His church. And even the prevailing ruin wrought by sin will not stop the advance of King Jesus subduing sinners to Himself. Well, all these things stirred a crucial question among the masses present. And you see it emerging from some who are amazed and perplexed, which is words that are often used as a symbol of the supernatural occurring. They ask, into verse 12, 
What does this mean? Now that question should immediately tell us that miracles that are witnessed, just because you see them, doesn't mean you understand what they mean. In fact, we should see here that miracles cannot produce faith and spiritual enlightenment on their own. Anyone familiar with the story of Israel in the wilderness, or what I call the God War on Mount Carmel, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you should know this already. Indeed, how many saw Jesus' miracles and still didn't grasp the truth about who He was and then submit to Him? The miracles have to be explained. And the means of the explanation that the Spirit uses is the Word. So that, brethren, the Word, not the wonder, is central. Now, as is usually the case when something amazing happens, the great works of God provoke two responses. There are those with an interest to know more, to be taught the significance of what God is doing. And then there are those who scoff even at the supernatural here. To some, the works of God are a savor of life. To others, they are the stench of death. And the hard-hearted say here at this phenomenon of tongues, intelligible speech, a foreign language heard by numerous people groups, they say, oh, these people are just filled with new wine. Well, that explanation, they're all drunk, is nonsense, as Peter will soon prove. But you should already note that the devil is not interested in making logical objections. He's not trying to be smart, we might say. He was pleased when the Pharisees argued that Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. That's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. But the hostile are not sensible. And that is a point we all need to remember when you try to use rational arguments with people darkened in sin. They don't work because people are blind. They're made foolish by the darkening power of sin. Those in love with sin are not going to make good arguments. They're spiritually deaf and stone cold dead. But there are some among the people right here who are about to be rescued from such a state. Peter's going to preach and the Spirit will use this sermon to cut people to the heart. So we're going to explore Peter's sermon to answer the crucial question, what does all this mean? And since this is such a monumental sermon, helping us make sense of the present situation and really make sense of the whole Old Testament as it points to Christ, we're going to consider the sermon over three weeks. Now, some of you might already be thinking, three weeks on one sermon. Wow. It only takes five minutes to read this sermon, so why would we spend three weeks unpacking it? Well, before you start beginning to think in your mind the value of a five-minute sermon, hey, let's get back to the early church where the sermons were short. Luke will tell you down in verse 40 that with many other words, Peter bore witness. What we have here that Luke records is a summary of, of the sermon and not a word-for-word sermon. In fact, if we get back to the early church, we might do as Paul did in Acts 20 and preach all night long. I'm not going to do that to you. So we're going to break it down. And this morning we look at the opening salvo and note four things. Four things. First, see with me the priority of Scripture. Now as we begin, look at the change in Peter. 
Just a few weeks ago, a servant's girl sent him into a panic where he denied Christ. But now here he is before thousands, ready to answer questions, and more than that, ready to proclaim Jesus is King. The Spirit of Christ, beloved, can make the timid bold. He can take those who were shattered in shame and restore them to usefulness. Further, He can make wise the simple. We all know that Peter didn't understand a lot of things previously. He didn't understand the death of Christ. He didn't understand things related to Jesus' suffering. He didn't understand the purpose of God. But now he gets it. Now that's not to say that Peter is the only one who gets it. But obviously Peter is speaking as a representative of the apostles. Look at verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven as the spokesman, lifted up his voice and addressed them, that is, the masses. Now, small thing to note here. Note that Peter lifts up his voice. Now, I know that they didn't have fancy lapel mics or Britney Spears concert mics back in those days. But I want you to understand something. Preaching is not just having a talk. Preaching isn't a mere conversation where the preacher speaks to you in the tone of a waiter explaining the menu to ask you, what is your pleasure? Preaching is impassioned speech. Preaching is an authoritative declaration. It's an announcement like a herald of the King of Kings and calling you to respond to the King. So Peter begins with an appeal as he lifts up his voice that you need to listen. Look at what he says, verse 14. He tells the people gathered, let this be known to you. That is, I have an explanation to give you and you shouldn't listen to me now in a disinterested way. Give ear to my words. In other words, listen carefully. It's not only the preacher who has to work to speak fervently and skillfully. The people have to tune their ears to listen, to engage your mind, to ready your heart to receive. Don't dismiss this, Peter is saying. Pay attention. Why? For though some are already trying to tune it out, these people are not drunk, Peter says, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, depending on which ancient writer you're following, this is either 8 or 9 a.m. or maybe somewhere in the middle. But in Jewish practice on a feast day, like Pentecost, morning prayer at the temple took place first. And that's the reason everybody is here. And then people went to eat. So no one's drunk when you well know no one has even eaten or drank anything yet. So then what's going on if they're not drunk? Well, instead of the foolish explanation, Peter says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel 2, 28-32. Now, this will be the first of three Old Testament quotations that Peter cites in this sermon. He'll also exposit Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And if we remember, in Peter's first sermon, a declaration to the 120 believers on what are we to think about Judas and we need to replace him, Peter also quoted Scripture, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. So what, you might say? What significance are we to make of this? Well, two things should be lodged in our hearts. First, when Jesus appeared to Cleopas and friend 
on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He exposited Scripture. He opened up the Old Testament. Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he interpreted or explained the things concerning himself. He showed the various prophecies and how, were, how they were fulfilled in him. Jesus did the same thing later that resurrection day when he met with the eleven apostles. <clears throat> he took the Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, uh, the, and Moses, and he related how these things relate to him. And then when Jesus was in his 40 days instructing the people of God before he ascends, what was he teaching them? He picked up the same subject he had always taught, the kingdom of God. He continued to explain the whole Old Testament and how it culminated in him. Well, what has Peter learned? He's learned, as we're going to repeatedly see in this sermon and the other sermons in Acts, that Christ is found all over the Scriptures. <clears throat> Peter learned, in the language of J.C. Ryle, that the Bible must be read with Christ continually in view. The grand primary object of Scripture is to testify of Jesus. The Old Testament ceremonies are shadows of Christ. The Old Testament judges and deliverers are types of Christ. The Old Testament history shows us the world's need of Christ. Old Testament prophecies are full of Christ's sufferings and His glory. So that the first coming and the second coming, the Lord's humiliation, the Lord's kingdom, the cross, the crown, they shine forth everywhere in the Bible. Brethren, as we come to read the Bible, are we reading it with Christ in view? Jesus once said to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That is, you guys seem to think because you read the Bible, because you know certain Bible phrases or memorize certain verses or maybe even have theological discussion about certain scriptural ideas, you think you automatically have eternal life. But it is these scriptures, Jesus says, that bear witness about me. The Jews read them and missed Jesus. They missed their sin and their need of a Savior. They missed the idea of the substitutionary atonement that Christ would make. They missed His great spiritual kingdom that He would bring, which is a deliverance not from a political power, but a deliverance from spiritual powers like Satan, sin, and death. Reading without seeing Christ, without fleeing to Christ and trusting in Christ as our great prophet, priest, and king. That is utter vanity. But Peter isn't missing Jesus. Well, brethren, are we... Are we driven to Christ as we read the Word? Do we see Him as the priority of Scripture? Do we rest in Him? Do we have communion with Christ? And then secondly, while Peter was once severely rebuked by Jesus, you remember, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now Peter is weighing his thoughts by Scripture. He sees that the Bible explains things to him and puts it all together. He sees that the Bible, while written by a number of different authors over the course of a thousand or more years, that it's yet an organic whole. It speaks with one mouth. The Spirit's present work 
is to shine light on His past work. For the Spirit authored the Scripture. He spoke by the mouth of Joel, and now the Spirit is speaking by the mouth of Peter to explain what Joel said. And while it's true the Spirit is doing something new here, we have new life, new creation, new power, the new is entirely connected to the past. Again, brethren, God's great plan that He's laying out in the Bible is full of unity of thought and purpose. Augustine said this in a very famous way that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the New Testament, the old is revealed. Or another modern writer has put it like this, the Old Testament is promises made, the New Testament is promises kept. It's overly simplistic, God is keeping His promises in the midst of the Old Testament, but you get the idea. God isn't doing one thing and then scrapping it when Jesus comes and doing something entirely different. No, the Scripture is showing you a unified plan of redemption. And what should preaching do, according to Peter's model? It should not exposit the newspaper or the latest internet craze. It should not unfold the latest philosophy. It should not appeal to man's feelings and explain them with some type of therapeutic solution. It should exposit Scripture. It should set our minds not on the things of man, but on the things of God. Preaching, of course, may mention cultural events. It may squash empty philosophies. It may and should appeal to your emotions. But it does so by opening up Scripture. Peter shows us what preaching is by explaining life by Scripture, by exegeting Scripture, by applying the the claims of Scripture to our lives. And in Scripture, what are we seeing? We're seeing what God is doing in Christ. And that is the priority. What does Christ, who is the King, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, what does He demand of me? The Spirit, as it were, is shining a spotlight on Jesus and saying, consider Him. And then secondly, see with me, this pervasive blessing occurring here, the pervasive blessing. Peter now moves on to his quotation of Joel, and he starts with a slight alteration, actually, of Joel 2.28. If you read Joel 2, as the ESV has it, Joel says, and it shall come to pass afterward, or more succinctly, and after this. Now, in the context of Joel 2, Joel had been describing a coming day when the Lord would show compassion to His people, when He would lavish blessing on them, take away all their enemies, bring restoration, and then dwell in their midst that they would never be put to shame. Well, those promises, as all the other prophets will also indicate, culminate in the latter days, in the last act of history, the time when God is bringing redemption and judgment. Well, Peter now says, that is this. What Joel was talking about is what you're seeing right now. We have the dawn of the last days. The time when, as Isaiah described it, when people would stream to the mountain of the Lord to be taught. Or when Hosea said, Israel would return to David their king. Or what Daniel said, a kingdom would be established that shall never be destroyed. So do you use Peter's language elsewhere? While the prophets of old were trying to search about the Spirit's predictions concerning the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ, it was revealed to them that they were serving you. 
Because Christ was made manifest in these last times. The end is here. More on that shortly. But specifically, in these coming days to which Joe looked, what would happen? Or from Peter's perspective, what's now happening? We'll get the promise. Verse 17, God had said, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. As the Spirit fills people, this is occurring right now. But what is meant by all flesh? Well, clearly it doesn't mean every single person is a recipient of the Holy Spirit because there are scoffers here without the Spirit. There will be people going forward in the book of Acts who will recoil at the proclamation that Jesus is King. What it means instead is that all kinds of people, Jews and proselytes, all those who are gathered listening, of whom there are many people converted, they will receive the Spirit. The blessing of Abraham is not confined only to Israel. God will expand that blessing to the Gentiles. All flesh, Jew and Gentile, will see the blessings of the Lord. Further, the Spirit, we're told, will invade the distinctions among people. Gender distinctions, your sons and your daughters. Age distinctions, your young men and your old men. Even class distinctions, the Spirit will come to the lowest of the low, male servants and female servants. Upon all of these kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, there is a deluge of blessing. Note the Spirit isn't here drizzled. He's poured out, which sounds like a downpour. A heavenly shower of divine generosity. A gift that only God can give. And this pouring out doesn't signal a temporary blessing. When you're sitting at the dinner table and one of your children knocks over the cup and it's poured out, you can't get it back in. It's a definitive moment. Well, the language here indicates finality, a new stage. And it's the last stage of redemptive history where the power of Christ is going forward in His Spirit. Indeed, that raises an interesting question. Who is pouring out the Spirit? If all we had was Joel 2, we would say, well, it's the Father. I will pour out My Spirit. And Jesus will later call the Spirit, or He has called the Spirit, the promise of My Father. However, in John 15, Jesus said He would pour out the Spirit. He would send Him. John the baptizer had said that Jesus will be the one who baptizes with the Spirit and fire. And then Peter, down in verse 33, will say that Jesus has poured out the Spirit. So who pours out the Spirit? The Father and the Son. By the way, in your bulletin, we have the Nicene Creed this morning. And we say something about how the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's being demonstrated right here. That's a, that was a really big controversy in, in the church. But the Scripture's making it clear. What does that mean for us? It means in Jesus, brethren, we don't get God light. We don't get junior deity. We don't get a lesser being. Christ is equal in power and glory to God the Father. And that's really important for us that we would be saved. And what's amazing is King Jesus brings all of these people, those of all flesh, into His kingdom that by the Spirit they would have intimacy 
with God. Now in the Old Testament, there were common everyday Joes and Janes who were believers, but they did not have the sense of nearness to God that, say, a prophet would or a priest would. The temple itself communicates separation. You you can't get close. The Spirit's work in the Old Testament is sporadic and selective. Moses spoke with with God in great intimacy, but other people didn't have that. And there came a time in Moses' ministry, Numbers 11, where Moses was overwhelmed by the burdens of instructing these people. They're craving meat and crying out for it, and Moses goes to God in prayer and basically says, I can't put up with this. I can't give these people what they want. Lord, if this is the way it's going to be, just kill me now. That's what he says. And then what does God do? He tells Moses to gather 70 men, the elders of the people, and he took some of the Spirit, capital S, from Moses and put it on those men that they might bear the burdens of the people. And those men then prophesied. The text is very clear in Numbers 11 to say they only prophesied once. It wasn't an ongoing thing, very similar to here. Their prophecy indicated the presence of the Holy Spirit. But there were two guys who weren't with the 70. They were somewhere in the middle of the camp. And when Joshua heard them prophesying, he was jealous for Moses' sake. And then Moses tells Joshua, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. That is fulfilled right here. Every believer is ushered into an intimate communion with God. Every believer is given gifts for service. Every believer can boldly approach the throne of grace. Every believer is called a prophet, priest, and king. Every believer is taught by the Spirit. Every believer can cry out, Abba, Father, and pray as though we are Jesus when we pray in Jesus' name. There's something new here to the expansive nature of Christ's blessings. We might say, the common servant has been given the privileges of a king. Or to shift the metaphor, We might say every believer has the privileges of sonship to go to our Father who is the King of Kings. It's hard to quantify this new stage as we move out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. In fact, if I were to go around the room and do a survey, how would you explain the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament versus the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old? I imagine I would get a lot of this. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not really sure I know how to do that. Maybe the best way to explain it is to try to remind you that in the Old Testament, the prophets received special instruction, special revelation. Prophets would have visions. They would dream dreams. And by the way, note the equivalence here as Peter says, what you're seeing with tongues is God pouring out His Spirit so that people prophesy and dream dreams and have visions, and they'll all prophesy. That means there's an equivalence between tongues, prophecy, dreams, and visions. I know that a lot of times people try to divide those up. Tongues interpreted as prophecy. But when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, concerning the understanding of every believer, every New Testament believer, listen to what he says. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood, misquoted, misapplied verses in all the Bible. 
I'll start quoting it. You'll, you'll know what it is. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of a man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. And people stop there. And they usually say, that's talking about heaven. Your eye hasn't seen it. Your ear hasn't heard it. You can't even imagine what God is doing. The, the concept doesn't stop there. Let me read the whole thing. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. In the Old Testament, a prophet like Daniel might get a partial piece of God's great plan. But now the Spirit in fullness, showing us God's great plan, is coming to us in Christ. We're not dependent upon a teaching prophet. We have the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to us. Helping us, guiding us, testifying with our spirits that we are the children of God and enabling us to speak truth by the Spirit to one another. What blessings have befallen God's people? And brethren, those privileges should captivate our hearts. And I think, frankly, again, I said this last week, we're not amazed by this because all we've ever known is the New Covenant era. But this level of intimacy was not known by God's people prior to Pentecost. You can access God in a way that other believers couldn't. Even believers like David the king. You know him better than David did. That is if you're reading your Bible. If you're taking in all that the Spirit's given you. What a marvelous blessing. And then comes thirdly, the presence of the end. Now, I've already started opening this up in Peter's last line and in these last days. But I want you to note the language in verses 19 and 20. As the Spirit is poured out, what else is happening? Verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Most of us are familiar enough with the Old Testament prophets to recognize the phrase, the day of the Lord. It's a day we often exclusively associate with judgment when God will repay the wicked and crush adversaries. It's a day of terror and dread when, as Amos puts it, the Lord will pass through your midst. That's an echo, isn't it? Of when the destroying angel passed through Egypt and everyone whose house wasn't marked with the blood would perish or their firstborn would perish. Back in Egypt, just prior to the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, there were other signs in the heavens of judgment. The river was turned to what? Blood. Fire ran down from heaven to the earth. Probably a description of lightning, but Exodus calls it fire. The sun was turned to darkness, the ninth plague. Well, here, Peter is quoting Joel, who has echoes of the Exodus, and he's quoting him about a future day of judgment which is clearly tied to the end of all things. But the coming of the Spirit is signaling that the, the end of all things is here. It's arrived. Now, we focused a lot on the Spirit bringing last day blessings. But as I mentioned last week, there's another side to the Spirit's work. 
a work of judgment. Peter's quotation of Joel says, before this great day of the Lord comes, there are wonders and signs. There are displays in the heavens of supernatural things. So what wonders and signs, what heavenly upheaval are we talking about here? Well, what has just happened in Jesus' ministry? It was full of signs and wonders. And at the cross, there was a cosmic upheaval. At the brightest part of the day as Jesus hung on the cross, what happened? The sun went dark. Do you remember how Isaac Watts puts it? Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ the mighty Maker died for man, the creature sin. There Jesus is hanging on that wretched tree and the wrath of God is falling upon Him. The fires of God's wrath. It's not accidental when He says, I thirst. He's suffering the judgment of God. He was the Passover lamb struck, shedding His blood for His people. And here is the significance of that moment. Brethren, at the cross, judgment day started. At the cross, judgment took place because Jesus faced the terrors of the day of the Lord for us. The reason there can be blessing now for the believer is because Christ quenched the fires of God's justice due our sin. And now there's no more condemnation in Christ Jesus if we belong to Him. Our judgment for sin is over. We're acquitted by virtue of Jesus' blood and righteousness. So the day of the Lord with His judgment has already arrived. And yet there's also a, a not yet to this day of the Lord. Jesus spoke of His return and He described it as a time when there would be heavenly upheaval and signs and wonders. Indeed, as the apostles go out, also doing signs and wonders, and call sinners to repent, they will be calling them to get reconciled with God before the great day comes. So the day of the Lord is here, and the day of the Lord is yet future. It's another in-between idea. The end of all things has dawned, the Spirit falls, and we're witnessing wonders, and we need to take heed, because... Behold, now is the day of salvation. In other words, the reason Peter told you at the beginning to hear this, listen, is because you need to respond now. There's urgency. This is the climactic moment to get right with God and to seek Him while He may be found. For the signs of judgment on Jesus at the cross say either you will take refuge in Christ you will stand under the shadow of His wings as the one who suffered for you, or you will face the great day of the Lord when the heavens are coming unglued and you will have no covering at all. The end is here. There is no time to dilly-dally about your soul. Receive blessings or reckon with the terrors of the Lord. What a sobering message. It offers comfort and caution, doesn't it? Comfort for those who fled to Christ. You have safety if you're in Jesus. You don't need to fear Judgment Day. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. But it's great caution if you don't have Christ. Because what will you do when you stand in your own sin before the, the God who is a consuming fire? Repent now. Take heed. And that leads lastly and briefly to the preeminence of Christ. 
right out of this word that brings comfort and caution, there's a hope, a promise. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The promise is emphasizing urgency. Humble yourself now. And it's communicating wondrous grace. The Lord will save sinners. The Lord will listen to the voice of the one who calls for salvation. But what I really want to stress to you here is upon whom are we calling for salvation? In Joel 2, this promise came from the covenant God, Yahweh. If you called on Him and fled from your sin, there would be safety in the midst of judgment, like a house marked with the blood when the destroyer passes by. But in Peter's situation, when he tells the people this promise, who is the Lord upon whom they must call? Now peek ahead in the sermon, down to verse 36. Right after Peter quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who is the great Adonai taking his seat on the throne? Peter explains, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you have crucified. What bearing does that have on our text? It says that the Lord to whom you must look for salvation is Jesus. He's not God-light. He's fully God. And He can actually save you. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the mighty King. Jesus is the one who came to rescue sinners. Why does He call Jesus? Matthew 1.21, You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. He is the God-man come to save, brethren. He's the one who secured life for His people through His death and resurrection. Jesus has overthrown the devil. Jesus has plundered Satan's house. Jesus has liberated sinners from captivity. Jesus has broke the bars of death. This is the champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only name given among men by whom we must be saved. Peter is giving Christ preeminence, to use Paul's word from Colossians 1. The first place. That will be the emphasis in every single sermon in Acts. Christ is Lord and you must call upon Him. You must repent and believe in Jesus because He's Lord of all. Now, almost all of you knew that before you came this morning. But here's the real question. Is Christ preeminent in our hearts? Have we truly called on Him to save our souls? Have we looked to Him as the Lord and the Christ, the only Savior among men? Are we coming to Him knowing that this Lord who is the judge of all is right now willing to listen to needy sinners? It reminds me of that story, and I'll close with this, when Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem and He passes through Jericho, and there's a blind man, blind Bart for short. Bart is calling out. Everyone's telling him to be quiet. I'm sure they weren't saying it that, that way. Shut up, beggar. We don't want to hear from you. He's yelling. He's screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me. Do you remember what happens? Jesus stops. A beggar that everyone wants to shut up gets the attention of the King of Kings.
Jesus listens to sinners. Call upon the name of Jesus, and you shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from you. Saved from your sin. Let us be found, brethren, fleeing to Christ and giving Christ the preeminence because He is Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before You marveling over Your great plan of redemption to save sinners through Jesus Christ, through His death and resurrection. And Lord, we're thankful for the deluge of blessings that have come to us through the Spirit And also thankful that while the end has come and judgment has commenced, that we who trust in Christ are liberated from all condemnation through the work of Jesus. Lord, may this excite us. May it truly thrill our hearts. And may it cause us to proclaim Christ. That He would not only have preeminence in us, but have preeminence in those that we know are without Christ. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.